0: Thank you, and thank you for being here tonight. Let's open our Bibles together for our study to the book of Jude. The book of Jude in the New Testament. I came across a copy of a memo when we were in the Holy Land. It's an ancient document and thought I would uh, read it to you here tonight. You didn't think they had memos 2,000 years ago, did you? Well, it is a a memo, an ancient memo, to Jesus, son of Joseph, from the Jordan Management Consultant. And you can appreciate, I think, what this is uh, going to say. From the Management Consultant that Jesus must have consulted. It says, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have taken our battery of tests, and we have not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of all tests are included, and you will want to study them carefully. As part of our service, we will make some general comments. These are, these, give, these are given as a result of staff consultation and come without any additional fee. Now I'm reading here from the original Greek, you understand, so if, if I uh, stumble every now and then you'll, you'll get it. You'll understand why. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you're undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We recommend you continue with your search. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The brothers, James and John, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas has a skeptical attitude that would tend to undermine morale. It is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. (laughs) James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, have radical leanings and show a high score on the manic depressive scale. Only one shows great potential, ability, resourcefulness. A business mind meets people well, ambitious, highly motivated. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. Till next time. Well, you didn't know that that was available. I don't think that was part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. But uh, it gives us the name of Judas, who is an example of of an apostate, Judas Iscariot. The Judas who wrote this book was the brother, half-brother of Jesus, and redeemed the name of Jude or Judas because of his obedience to Christ. Beginning in verse 5, we continue our study where it says, Now I desire to remind you, though you all know though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way, as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Jude is writing to warn the church about apostasy. There's a lot of similarity, as I suggested last week, between what Jude writes and what Peter wrote in his second epistle. In fact, the description that Jude gives of apostates very closely aligns and corresponds to the description that Peter gave in chapter two of Second Peter. It seems more than coincidence. There are those who say that the two of them had the same source that they drew upon in writing their letter, but more likely the one followed the other and was stimulated by the language by the warning that was given and wrote his own letter along the same theme assuming that to be the case it is probable that uh, peter wrote his epistle first and that james or excuse me jude intending to write about the common salvation that he enjoyed with other believers must have read that epistle He was so stirred and so deeply moved by the warning that Peter gave regarding apostasy. And seeing it coming to pass in his own day, just a few years after Peter's martyrdom probably, he picked up the same theme. He says, now I must write to you about something else that you contend for the faith. Because there are people, there are apostates who have crept into the church and they're corrupting the church. And he uses a lot of Peter's language in describing these same people. What he tells us in the verses that we read tonight is how God responds to apostasy. Now remember that an apostate is one who falls away. Literally, that's what the word means. It's one who falls away from the faith. It is one who is a defector. That is why I began tonight with this rather humorous memo regarding Judas Iscariot, because in many ways what that management company came up with was true. Judas was a very talented individual, and yet he became the apostate among the apostles. He was the one of the twelve who fell away from Jesus and from the faith and had a tragic end. So one who is an apostate is one who professes, as Judas did, to go along with Christ. But then who departs from the faith in basic, fundamental ways. Here in Jude and in 2 Peter 2, it suggests that those fundamental ways of departure include what they believe about the person of Jesus Christ, whether he is God, come in the flesh. And also the work of Jesus Christ, whether his cross work, his blood atonement, was sufficient as the only payment for human sin. Inevitably, apostates will fail on one or both, often both, of those accounts. Now, an apostate is somewhat in contrast to a heretic, which is also a New Testament word. A heretic is one whose teaching is not inconsistent necessarily with the fundamentals of the faith, but who is teaching aside from the Bible in secondary manners of uh, lifestyle or doctrine. He is one who harbors on a particular truth and is out of balance because of that, and as his name implies, heretic, he is one who forces others to make a choice. Are you going to follow me, or are you going to go with them? So that's the pressure of a heretic. One can be saved and be a heretic. One cannot be saved and be an apostate. In fact, an apostate has never truly been saved. He may like to retain the identity of being a Christian, in quotes, but he does not believe the Bible's basic teachings. And the result of that is that although he may for a time appear to be a Christian, inevitably there comes a point when he will return to the world and to his former manner of living, as Peter says at the end of the second chapter of his epistle, Second Peter. A genuine Christian who gets involved in false teaching will be brought back to the truth to the Word of God or be brought to truth through the chastisement of god or if those fail will be taken to heaven in an untimely death by a loving lord regarding apostates we're going to see tonight that god always judges apostasy it is a good reminder to all of us and whether men or angels those who are apostate will ultimately face the wrath of God because of their falseness. Now Jude seems to enjoy triads. We have seen several of them, even in the first four verses. He identifies himself with a triad. He talks about believers in terms of a triad, that is, three truths. He appraise a triad, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now as we come to verse 5, verses 5 through 7, we see another triad. He has three examples here of God's wrath on apostasy. Each of these three examples was noted for rebellion against God and, and turning to their own desires, as we shall see. The first example, the first tragic example of apostasy is Israel itself, in verse 5. He says, I desire to remind you. That's good for all of us to be reminded of things, isn't it? The older I get, the more I need it, the more my wife does it. (laughs) I desire to remind you, he writes, though you know all things once for all. A better understanding of that phrase is probably, though you once knew this. In other words, he's not going to tell them something, they, already, something they, they should know that they've never heard before. He's going to tell them something they've already learned. And he's going to emphasize it and remind them of it. And it is simply this, that the Lord saved a people out of the land of Egypt. And of course, that was the nation of Israel. They were in slavery in Egypt after many long years of bondage. And they cried out for a deliverer, and God raised up Moses. And after Moses finally graduated from the university of learning how to do these things at 80 years of age, God sent him back to Egypt, and there caused him to be the redeemer, the deliverer of the people of Israel out of that land of bondage. They were redeemed by the blood of the Passover lamb on that that great night of the last plague. When the firstborn in Egypt died, but God spared the firstborn of his people who were under the blood. And uh, the people were delivered. They were redeemed by the blood out of their bondage. And then God brought them through the Red Sea by his great power, causing the waters to part. They went into the waters, as it were, as dead people, and came up on the other side by his, his grace and goodness, as resurrected people so to speak and uh, Paul says in doing that they were baptized into Moses that is they were identified with Moses as their great leader 1 Corinthians 10 talks about that and then he led them to the mountain for the receiving of the law and after receiving the law they went to Kadesh Barnea where there was the final rebellion against the Lord. Now, they had been complaining at various points up to this, had even entered into false worship there at Mount Sinai, for Moses was gone too long, and they constrained Aaron to build them an idol out of gold, a gold from Egypt, and it was a calf, and they worshipped that calf. These are the people now who've been redeemed who've been led out of Egypt by God's great power, and yet they are now bowing down to the calf, and God brings judgment on them, but he brings them finally to Kadesh Barnea, where comes the great test of their faith, and they send spies into the land. You know the story, the spies came back, 10 of them said, we can never do this. The people are too big, we need to go back to Egypt. It's too great a task, we can't accomplish this. Two people, the minority report, said we can do it by god's help by god's power we can do this but the nation took the majority report and disobeyed god and therefore god judged them to be in the wilderness for time of testing and uh, that whole generation died in the wilderness under god's judgment that's what he's talking about here he says god saved a people out of the land of egypt but subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Who was it that did not believe? Who were the people that died in the wilderness? Well, we understand that not everyone who came out of Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb was personally saved. There were those undoubtedly who believed the Lord, such as Moses, and who had come into a relationship with the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But many of those people had never had a personal relationship with God at that time. And when it came to the point of the great test, they did not believe God. They believed not, and they fell away. They had been going along with some grumbling and complaining on the side, but when it came to the test, They failed because they were not genuine believers at all. And they fell into the judgment of God. Now, the writer of Hebrews uses this same example as a warning to us. Turn back there with me to the third chapter of Hebrews. You know from what I said last week and what I've said through the years that I believe strongly in the security of the believer. But even one who believes as as strongly as I do in that doctrine reads these verses with some trembling, as we all ought to. It says in verse 6 of Hebrews 3, But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, it says, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Now, in casual reading, that seems to say that we belong to the Lord, but we've got to hang on. And if in our own strength, as it were, we hang on until the end and don't fail, then we'll get saved in the end. That is not what it means. It is a conditional sentence or clause at the end of that whole sentence, conditional clause, but it's what's called a first class condition, which means that there is an assumption, a presumption, that the condition will be met. So it really could be translated this way, whose house we are since we hold fast our confidence. That captures a better idea of what the writer was saying here. Since we hold fast, our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. But even putting it that way, there is a warning here, and the warning is this, that there may be those who will go along with Christ to some degree, but who will never step over that line of genuinely trusting Him and establishing a relationship with God. And the result of that will be that they will not hold fast their confidence or boast of their hope until the end. They will give out somewhere along the way. Now, we're not talking here about a believer who may experience a period of carnality in his life. That is a very sad possibility for any of us, that we should choose to live out of the Lordship of Jesus Christ for a period of time and experience the chastisement of God because of that and waste our time. That that's a sad possibility for any of us who know Christ. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about someone who so departs from his former profession that he no longer believes at all. There is no longer any faith in Jesus Christ, no longer an acceptance of him as being God. No longer any evidence of trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for his sins. Such a person, the Bible calls, an apostate. Such a person was never saved to begin with, though he may have been within the church, he may have called himself a Christian, may have gone along with certain doctrines, or all of the doctrines, for a period of time. And all of us, never, say all, all universal. Many of us know people who would fall into that category. People who had a brilliant testimony, who could even cause you to weep at the story they could tell, and move you with what they said at their baptism, perhaps. And yet, in the end, fell away, no longer believed tragic tragic they say well are they apostate or are they carnal well that's pretty tough for us to tell sometimes uh, it's not our business necessarily to tell to judge individuals that way but god knows and that's what counts Now the writer goes on to say Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, I'm still in Hebrews 3, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, notice, by the way, that although he's quoting from Psalm 95, it's the Holy Spirit who's talking. We have here an evidence of inspiration. But even though human writers wrote the words, it's the Holy Spirit who's speaking through them. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As when they, that's Israel, provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest Now, the writer of Hebrews applies this. He says, take heed, take care, beware, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, that is, a deliberately disobedient, unbelieving heart, in falling away from the living God. Falling away here is not the word apostatize, though it's a very similar idea, but it means to step aside from God beware of that but encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin the picture in the word hardened is of clay that is made dry by the sun it is possible for our hearts to become hardened by sins ability to deceive us, to cheat us, to give us a false impression so as to take advantage of us. Be careful, he says, lest your hearts be tricked and hardened by sin, for we have become partakers of Christ, if, there's the same word and the same idea, since we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. You see, the real proof that a man or woman has come to faith in Jesus Christ is found not in how brilliant the testimony may be, but in whether there is continuance in the faith in the long run. That's the test. Sadly, there have been some shooting stars, I call them in Christianity, who were just brilliant flashes in the night. And everybody looked up at their conversion, and some of them have been well-known people and went, ah, and blip, they were gone. Just that fast. The evidence of genuineness is continuance, you see. That's what the writer here is saying. And... The sad fact is that there were many in the land of Israel who came out of Egypt who did not continue in belief. And they were found out and their apostasy, their falling away from God, brought judgment upon them. That's example number one that Jude points out. And now we need to look at verse 6 where we have a second example, it is that of angels. We have an earthly example of apostasy in Israel. Now we have a heavenly example, so to speak, of angels who apostatized, who did not keep their own domain, it says. That's what they did. They did not keep their own domain. They did not keep their first estate, as one translation puts it. Their domain refers to their position or to their office. Their, their sphere of, of rule, the assigned place that God gave to them as angels. They did not keep that. But it says they abandoned, they deserted, once and for all, their proper abode. That means their dwelling place, their assigned duty. And it says, regarding them, he, God, has kept them in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Question, who are these angels that did not keep or maintain their original state or position? Who abandoned their assigned realm? Who left once and for all in an act of leaving behind what they were assigned to? And who entered in, it says, into um, what God had not assigned to them. They abandoned their proper abode. What what are these angels? What did they do? Well, there are those who believe that uh, these are the angels who fell with Satan. And that certainly is a possibility. That he is talking here about angels that... Joined him in his rebellion, his proudful rebellion against God. Now, a question that would come to mind regarding that interpretation is uh, where do the demons come from today? Where do the fallen angels come from today that are with Satan? If these are the angels that fell with him, why were only some of the angels then? if that was the occasion of their abandonment why did some only some of the angels receive this immediate judgment from God there are those who believe that that uh, on the other hand these are the angels who sinned in Noah's day in Genesis chapter 6 we read the words regarding the sons of God which seems to be a title used of angels how be it Of uh, unfallen angels. It says in Genesis chapter 6, It came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. These are mysterious verses, and they're understood a variety of ways. My study of scriptures, I believe, at least where I'm at tonight, my belief is that the best understanding of Jude's words are that is that these angels that he mentions are those in Genesis chapter 6. I believe we see that suggested in verse 7, where we will be in a moment, where it suggests that these angels committed some sort of Of sexual offense. Now I know that there are those who believe that uh, this is impossible because they, they say angels are sexless. Jesus said that angels neither marry nor are given in marriage in the Gospel of Matthew. However, it doesn't say there that they're without sex. It simply says that they don't marry, they're not given in marriage, which is different than saying that they are sexless. There's, of course, the problem, how can a creature in the angelic realm enter into sexual sin with a person in the human realm? I don't have an easy answer for that one. Angels, of course, are spiritual beings. They may assume human form. They have done that. And uh, perhaps they do have that capacity to do what these angels are said to have done. Uh, It is possible that these angels possessed men and so dominated and controlled them that these demonically controlled men were their agents in uh, impregnating women. Uh, It is a sordid and... uh, perverted story there in Genesis chapter 6. By the way, the language there does not particularly say that this race of Nephilim, these giants, were produced by that. It says that they were present at that time. And they were there afterward as well. But it does tie it together. Now, I have given you what I believe to be the correct answer as to what these angels did in Jude 6, Uh, I can't—I won't give my life for that interpretation, but uh, I've given you what I believe is the best answer. But let's not get lost in trying to figure out what the Bible is not exactly clear about. Let's come back and just notice what Jude is trying to tell us, and that is that even angels have apostatized. They did not maintain what God ordered them to maintain. They fell away from God's assignment, God's lot to them. And therefore God kept these angels who did this in eternal bonds, it says, in darkness. He has, so gross was their apostasy, so unnatural, so strange was what they did that God has kept them in special guard, in darkness. Peter tells us it's it's in Tartarus, which is translated hell in some Bibles. It's not the Gehenna hell. It is a separate place of confinement in darkness where these angels are kept, awaiting the final judgment, when they will be brought before God for the heinous apostasy Of which they are guilty. So that is Jude's second example, that God judges apostasy, be it men or angels. Now his third one is found in the next verse in Jude. It says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. And so we have the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice the language. It says, just as, or even as, Sodom and Gomorrah and these cities, since they in the same way as these, as who? As the angels. This is the connection that I see between the two verses that suggests to me that it is these angels who committed sexual sin in Genesis chapter 6 that he's talking about. Because he says, the Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, around them, as these, these angels, indulged in gross immorality. The word gross here means excessive or perverted immorality. Very intense, strong word. And went after strange flesh, different flesh that is different in the sense it's out of their order. And you can understand that if, in fact, my understanding of Genesis 6 is correct, and these are the angels in view, that what they did was completely out of their order, that they would cohabitate with women in the realm of humanity. Well, let's get back to Sodom and Gomorrah because uh, that is the example here and it says that those cities also were judged because of gross immorality. And we understand exactly what is spoken of here. He is talking about homosexual behavior which characterized the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and those cities uh, in the plains around them. Now, there is a great effort on the part of some in the gay community today to reinterpret the Bible as to what it says about homosexuality. They go to great and twisted lengths to try to show that the, what the Bible says is not what the Bible means, and that God does not condemn homosexuality, but what he condemns is being unfaithful, immoral in one's sexuality. And I have read articles and papers in which they state that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was not homosexuality, but it was their lack of welcoming the angels. They were inhospitable. They they were not kind people, and therefore God judged them. But it had nothing to do with their sexual practices. But that is exactly what Jude says was the problem. He says that in the same way as these angels, Sodom and Gomorrah indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, that is, they. They sought to satisfy their sexual desires out of the natural order that God has ordained. And so Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain apostatized. They fell away from the order that God has established for sexual fulfillment and satisfaction. So here was the apostasy that that they committed. Now I want to to go on and say just something more about this, because uh, I think that we need to to use the Bible to prove that God hates homosexuality as it's practiced. But it doesn't mean that God hates homosexuals. God loves sinners, be they heterosexual or homosexual sinners. God loves sinners and seeks to save them. Furthermore, I want to say, well let me just say this in addition to what I was, I was saying a moment ago, that we ought not to use the Bible and verses like this as a club to beat these people over the head. Now we can use it to prove them to be mistaken as they attempt to twist the Bible to fit their lifestyle but let's not use it as a club to beat them up. They have been beaten up enough in the world. Now the next thing I want to say is that there are Christians who struggle with gay feelings. God does not judge gay feelings. Why do people have these inclinations and tendencies? It's a very complex subject. Is it nurture? Or is it nature? I mean, the debate rages back and forth as to which it is. Is there a genetic reason for it? There are those trying to prove that to be the case, and of course they have a certain political end in view uh, in using that argument, which we would disagree with. It may be that there is a genetic component to it. As a matter of fact, it may be that there is a genetic component to any kind of sin, and proclivity toward a certain sort of behavior. That does not excuse human responsibility. All it says is that we are broken people in sin. That sin has been passed down to us from Adam and we are all broken in a variety of ways because of sin. Undoubtedly in a congregation of this size tonight there are those who struggle with homosexual feelings and we're talking about it very bluntly and God's judgment upon that kind of behavior but I want you to know that God doesn't judge you for having those inclinations if that's your case what he judges is your your fulfilling them acting them out behaving in that way And uh, if you want to talk further about that with myself or one of the pastors on the staff, we'll be happy to, to counsel with you about it. But I'm talking about God's judgment on apostasy. I don't want someone who's a believer here struggling with these tendencies to go away tonight and say, I'm judged. God says, I'm an apostate. I'm not saying that about you. But what Jude is pointing out here is a society there in the cities of the plains, that was given over to this kind of behavior. It's the direction that I'm afraid our own society is heading. I'm afraid that we are on a long, I hope a long, but maybe not even a long, but certainly a slippery slope toward a society very much like Sodom and Gomorrah's where anything goes and God brought judgment to those cities. And it says that he did this uh, by their undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. What he may mean there is that the fire that destroyed them is an example of the kind of punishment that awaits sinners. We know the end of Sodom and Gomorrah was, was a tragic and sudden, cataclysmic end. We, some of us were a few weeks ago in the Dead Sea Valley that uh, whole valley that begins up at Mount Hermon and then comes south through Israel, the border between Israel and Jordan uh, and then continues out into the Red Sea and over into Africa is all part of what's called the Great Rift Valley it is a huge valley, a very active volcanic area Historically, in the world. And what seems to have happened was that God caused, caused that volcanic potential in that valley at that time to erupt. And the cities were completely destroyed as a result of it. And uh, I believe personally that if archaeologists were to begin digging in the area of the Dead Sea that they would find these cities buried there. It may be that they have been underwater for a long time, but the Dead Sea is drying up. And they may start the digging one of these days. In fact, uh, it was interesting. I think it was on the the Jordanian side. No, it was on the Israeli side of the the border that there was a sign to the city of Sodom. So apparently there is some community there that uh, still has that name today. It's not exactly where I would want to live. But... uh, Apparently, there is still today in that Dead Sea area a city that bears this name. And he says this was all set forth as an example. They are exhibited as an example, a warning to apostates, those who fall away from God's order. The word exhibited means to lay out in state like a corpse. <laughs> They are exhibited, this whole incident is laid out as an example to apostates warning them of the direction that they are heading, and that is the direction of God's judgment. Years ago on the island of Martinique, there was a prominent citizen who blasphemously crucified a pig and carried it through the streets of St. Pierre in a religious festival. He put a title on the cross, and the title was the Holy Jesus. This citizen who was an editor of the newspaper ridiculed Christ and dared God to show himself that he was alive and real. The public laughed at what he did, and no one seemed to object to it. But only a few days later, Mount Pele erupted and completely destroyed the city of St. Pierre. How do we avoid apostasy in the church? Because that's what Jude's concerned about. He sees false teachers coming into the church. How do we avoid apostasy in the church? Let me just suggest two or three things. First of all, all of us need to be students of the Bible. We need to study the Word of God and show ourselves approved as good students of the word of God that we may not be ashamed secondly we need to guard the leadership offices of the church we protect the church by protecting the leadership offices now Paul warned that among the elders at Ephesus there would be wolves who would come in to destroy the flock we have to guard against that Third, we have to be alert to people who might creep in for the purpose of bringing apostasy. Jude says that there were those who purposely were doing that in his day. I mean, these were not people who happened to come in. He says they purposely, intentionally crept in secretly in order to bring this false teaching into the church. And that still happens today. We need to be on guard against that. And when apostasy is found, we need to expose it and to separate from it. Romans chapter 16 talks a little about that. <laughs> Romans chapter 16. I urge you, brethren, verse 17, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Verse 18. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And so this is but one of the texts in the Bible that warns us that we are not to cooperate with apostasy. That the position of the Christian is to expose it and to stand away from it, to separate from it. Because we have no fellowship, nothing in agreement with darkness, with those who are false. And therefore it says, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. And so that is biblical separation. And it's one of the reasons that we as a church uh, do not cooperate with the World Council of Churches, for example, or the National Council of Churches. Because those are apostate organizations. Now, I'm not saying that every person who's in a church that belongs to those organizations is lost. But I'm saying as organizations, they're apostate. They do not love our Lord Jesus Christ. They do not honor His Word even though they are called churches and even Christian, they are apostate. So we want to be separate from those uh, those things. That's how we protect ourselves against apostasy. Now, Jude is going to go on to say some more things to us and describe to us what apostates are like. And I hope you'll be with us for those studies. Thank you for coming tonight. I uh, doubt that anything I've said has caused any questions to come to your mind. But if that's the case, we'll have to delay them because uh, we have a drop-in at our house for new members who've come into our church in the last little while. So I hope that you will excuse me for slipping out quickly tonight, but I do thank you for coming. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we thank you for the clear and strong words that Jude gives us, warning us of the day in which we live as his day when apostasy was rampant. May we as a church be alert against false teaching that denies Jesus Christ, denies the sufficiency of his work on the cross for us. Help us to love sinners while at the same time avoiding the sin. We pray, Father, that we may be people committed to the book, that you would teach us The truth not that we may become self-righteous in it but that we may become sharers of the truth humbly and eagerly seeking that others may come to know our lord jesus and be saved from the judgment of god that is coming upon all sin and all unbelief as we pray in christ's name amen